I'm going to read now from Luke chapter 18 and from verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for this parable that takes us right to the very heart of the gospel and opens and exposes, explores our own hearts. Lord, speak directly to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a story told by Christabel Bielenberg. And this is a lady who, while studying music in Germany in the early 1930s, met and married a young German lawyer, Peter Bielenberg. She took German citizenship when they married in 1934, but both of them grew increasingly opposed to Nazism. And in 1944, her husband was arrested and taken to the infamous Ravensbrück concentration camp. Despite the threat to her own personal safety, she visited her husband regularly there. And amazingly, after a meeting with an SS Sturmbannführer, she managed to secure her husband's release. Not many people walked out of Raisenbrook, but she was a, a forceful woman I'm told. But immediately he went into hiding, and after the war, they they built an incredible life together. But the story I want to share relates to one incident that took place on one of her train journeys to Ravensbrook. And she found herself sitting uh, beside or opposite an SS officer. In her words, after some time, he started talking as if I was in the confessional. He talked of how his father had been killed by the Russians. And he had just one thought from that moment in his mind to take revenge for his father's death. He decided to join the German army. And as he was tall, blonde, and Aryan looking, he was recruited to the SS, to the Einsatz Commando. And these were extermination groups working in German-occupied territory. And he said... Do you realize what they did? It was not fighting the war. It was murdering Jews. We used to stand them in a small circle around the machine guns. One day before the shooting, I can remember a little boy stepped forward and said to me, Do I stand straight enough, uncle? 
And once an old man, a rabbi, a priest, he stepped forward, looked at us with all our guns and said, God is watching what you do. Before he turned around again, they shot him. The look he gave us will never leave me. I resigned then and joined the military SS, a fighting troop. Finally, he said, you see, Frau, I have to die and I can't die. All the ones with hopes, with photographs in their pockets, they are killed and I am not. I have been on several fronts and I'm now heading for the Russian front. And I hope to die. I hope for my death. Now there's so much that's tragic about that story. But you know what I think is most tragic about it? That this SS officer who despised himself with good reason, this man who felt himself to be without any hope, that in that moment, in that railway carriage, he was, I believe, perhaps as close as a man can get to God without actually knowing God. How do I say that? How can I say that? Does what I've I've just said there perhaps provoke you to feel shocked, surprised, even outraged? Well, let's try and answer those questions and also explore what might perhaps lead you to that response by looking here in Luke at this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And let's begin by looking at two very different kinds of people. Two different kinds of people. For there are two different people portrayed for us here. One, this tax collector I would describe as someone who's needy but knows it. Needy but knows it. Now in order to understand this, let me explain or maybe perhaps remind you of something. And that is that the first century Jewish tax collector was not the pillar of society, of respectability, that by and large, jokes apart, I won't tell any this time, today's members of the Inland Revenue are maybe seen to be. To the contrary, these were men who were employed by the hated Roman oppressors. And all too often, they used, they abused their position. And by bribery and blackmail, they managed to extort money from their Jewish countrymen. So we're not talking here about our SS officer, who to some extent might at least be admired for his physical bravery. Now this is more like the, the mayor of an occupied French town. Someone who collaborates, who fraternizes with the enemy, who uses his influence perhaps to betray his friends, certainly to betray his country and all for the lining of his own pockets. Now such a man was almost bound to be hated and despised. And this man here shows that he knew, his, knew he was. Worse, he knew that he deserved to be because he knew that not only was he wrong in the eyes of his fellow man, but also that he was wrong in the eyes of God. He was needy, and he knew it. This other man, though, this Pharisee, well, 
I would describe him as respectable, but proud of it. Again, I think it's important that we're clear here in understanding just what we're dealing with in the, the character of this man, of this Pharisee. For we're inclined to see, as whenever we think of Pharisees, to see them as, as enemies of Christ, as terrible people. We're inclined to do all that, and it's all largely correct. And therefore then, though, to jump to the conclusion that they've got nothing whatsoever to do with us, nothing in common with us. But you know, this isn't the kind of picture that the, the mention of a Pharisee would have brought to mind for the first century Jews who first heard this story. So if we're really then going to understand this parable in the way that Jesus intended, then we're going to have to, I think, learn to think about this Pharisee in a different way, at a greater depth. What were then the main kind of characteristics of a Pharisee? What kind of man was a Pharisee? Well, first of all, a Pharisee was a regular worship attender. Every time the doors were open, he would be there. The Pharisee was a, a Bible student. He knew the Bible in his own particular way, perhaps, but he knew it, and he wouldn't allow the slightest deviation from what he saw as fundamental truth. The Pharisee was a committed giver. He gave what he should, and then a little bit more. The Pharisee was also a model of holiness. He was totally committed, if misguided, in living his life, in seeking to live it, to please God. Finally, he would also be regular in prayer, as is evidence here. He'd be regular in his personal devotions, eager to pray at any prayer meeting. So putting all of this together... Can you guess where the Pharisee would feel most at home in our day? Within the ranks of evangelical Christianity. A man like this in many respects could quite happily be a Baptist church member, deacon, elder, even a pastor preaching from this pulpit. Now let me further qualify this to just stop you jumping to the wrong conclusion. I'm not saying that every evangelical Christian is a Pharisee. To the contrary, the vast majority of evangelicals are about as far from a Pharisee as you could possibly imagine. But what I am saying, though, is that I believe it is possible to have a front of Christianity and yet to have the spirit of the Pharisee living within your heart. Do you want to know when that happens? Do you want to know? It happens whenever we forget, like the next man or woman, like every man or woman, we are needy sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness. It happens when we maybe acknowledge that in our minds, but when we've actually lost the reality of it, in our hearts. When we begin to think or even to secretly imagine that there's just that little bit of something about us, be it our goodness, be it our practice of our faith, our respectability, something about us 
that makes us better, that lifts us just a little bit above the level of the ordinary man or woman. And do you know something? People sense when this is the case. They know instinctively when this is going on that what's maybe dressed up as care is actually condescension. This what's suggested to be spirituality is actually nothing other than a sense of superiority and the preening of spiritual pride. Two very different people then. But here we also find two very different prayers as well. And of course, that's not unexpected from two such different characters. But on the one hand, we've got the prayer of the Pharisee. The heart of which really is, is pride and self-sufficiency. In fact, this isn't actually a prayer at all. For this man doesn't come to talk with God, still less to do business with God, to actually open his heart and mind that God might deal and open up the real needs of his life. Rather, all he's come to do is he's come to tell God, and maybe more importantly, anyone else who might happen to be listening, to tell them what an absolutely marvelous individual, outstanding spiritual specimen he is. I read this once described as, in a sense, going into a doctor's surgery, and before the doctor gets a chance to speak, saying, listen, doc, I want you to know that I am in A1 physical condition, an absolutely magnificent specimen. In fact, in short, unlike all those miserable men and women sitting there in your waiting room, I don't need you at all. In fact, the only reason I'm here is because I know this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look after your health. You see, this is about the archetypal proud hypocrite who's all about front, all about appearance, and certainly here, appearance at prayer. And what this brings to mind for me are the words of Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 9, 12. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That is that Jesus came to save not the spiritually proud, but the spiritually broken and humble. And, and the fact is that, that when this is our frame of mind, when this is the way we view ourselves, then we are not in the place where Jesus can do anything with us until we arrive at that point of brokenness and repentance. And I have to say, I do, that there have been times in my Christian experience when I have heard prayers that have seemed to be perilously close to the prayer of this Pharisee. When you've maybe sensed that someone's prayers aren't an expression of a real heart-to-heart -heart communication with God, but have seemed to be more about a desire to impress both God and man. Prayers that come across as more of a, a kind of showy, sending, showing off of the, the depth of someone's um, you know, Bible knowledge or the breadth of their spiritual vocabulary. Prayers that have been more of a sermon on themselves than a real meeting with God. And certainly this prayer, 
was a prayer that had an impact on its audience. Its audience of one. Something that's so clearly reflected in, in the other prayer we find here. The prayer of the tax collector. And it's, it's easy to imagine this almost semi-comic, or maybe it should be tragic-comic scene. You know, the Pharisee, with one eye open, praying at the top of his voice, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and especially I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. It is almost semi-comic, except for the depth of response that it provokes. For this man beats his chest, something that no Jew would ever do unless they were in the deepest distress. And then when his eyes downcast, he looks at nobody, he certainly does raise his eyes to heaven. He prays his simple prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But you know, in fact, that translation doesn't actually go far enough. For what he actually says here is, the sinner. God have mercy on me, the sinner. And in that moment, that's how he feels, as if he's the only sinner, or at least certainly the worst sinner in the world. Do you know what's at the heart of that prayer? It's a tremendous sense of sin and of personal unworthiness. And yet at the same time, of dependence, humble dependence on the grace and mercy of God. And as it says here, that's the kind of prayer that God hears and answers. Now, a little while we talk a bit more about issues related to the awareness of sin and guilt in the life of an individual. But first, just for a moment, I want to talk a little bit about this in relation to the corporate, even at the societal level. Because you see, we live at a time in history where because of the, the influence of, of psychiatry and, and other influences that at the moment are running through philosophical kind of influences through society, we live at a time where guilt of any kind is questioned and is usually seen as an illness. Because you see, nowadays, it's all about doing whatever you want. And if you do that, what you want, and instead of feeling happy, you feel guilty, then that's a problem. Maybe that's an illness. Something that you need to be freed from. Something that you need to be healed of. Now, of course, there are times when people with an oversensitive conscience do feel guilty about things that they shouldn't feel guilty about. That can happen. People shouldn't feel guilty, for example, about enjoying the good things, the blessings of life that God brings into our life. We shouldn't feel that. But when we reach the point, though, when things like selfishness and greed and pride, etc., things that the Bible calls sin, when we've reached the point where we feel it's wrong to feel guilt about these things, then I think we've lost the way. We've lost the way. Now, whether we realize this or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, I believe this has influenced the church and just maybe various ways. But just here's one example. How do most Christians today evaluate the effectiveness 
of a service. Have I been blessed? Isn't it? Have I been blessed? And it's true sense, there actually is nothing better. But so often, what that means in our day is it means people coming out of church feeling good about themselves, feeling that they've had a, a good time. But if we actually realize, though, what worship really is, that is a meeting with a loving yes, yes, but also with an awesome and holy God, then it does worry me how seldom we hear today of, of individuals, of congregations even, coming under a sense of conviction, being broken by their sinfulness, being brought to their knees in repentance, before then moving on into true blessing. There are lots of good things about Christianity in the church today, but I think there's an impoverishment here and in other areas that still should concern us. Before we move on, let me just share with you some comments by Roy Clements on this prayer. This is what he says. Think about it. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A self-evidently laudable ambition, you would have thought. Both went to pray, and both came home believing sincerely they had prayed. Yet, while one of them truly did have dealings with God in his devotions that day, the other, in spite of his avowed good intentions, was conducting a soliloquy, speaking only to himself all the time he was in the temple. So, Jesus says, it's possible to come to the house of prayer thinking that you want to meet with God. To leave the house of prayer thinking that you have done so. And all the time to be self-deceived. What a disturbing challenge to the reality of our own spiritual experience that must be. We've looked at two different kinds of people, at two different kinds of prayer. Let's look finally at two different kinds of righteousness. For first of all, we have the righteousness of the Pharisee, which I believe is a self-righteousness based on guilt denial. Now, let me just say here, the Bible does make it clear that there's a real difference between true guilt and false guilt. There is. True guilt being something precise, something that's pinpointed by the Holy Spirit who wants to move us to repentance, and one of whose major ministries, John 16, 18 tells us, 16, 8, sorry, tells us, is to convict of sin. False guilt, though, on the other hand, is something imprecise. It's something indefinite. It's a vague feeling that, that in some way we've done something wrong, that there's something wrong in our lives. This, I believe, so often having its roots in the cunning and destructive malice of the one who, again, as the Bible tells us, Revelation 12.10, is the accuser of God's people. But what we're talking about here, though, is, is slightly different, just a little bit, slightly more subtle. For what we have here is a man 
who was guilty, who should have felt guilty, but who managed to deny his guilt feeling by, by the employment of various techniques. Now, in, in saying that, let me just make two things clear. When I say that he denied his guilt feelings, perhaps more accurately I should say that he attempted to deny them. As I don't believe that ultimately he would be entirely successful in this. I don't, I don't think anyone ever is. That there are always inevitable repercussions whenever we try and deny guilt. And we'll talk about that in a, a moment or two. Also, let me make this clear, that when I say that he used various techniques to deny his guilt, I'm not saying that, that, so, that this was necessarily something that was thought out and planned. I'm not saying that because, you see, it's part of our natural instinct. It's part of who we are as fallen men and women to try and deny our guilt. Whenever we can, whatever way we can, we'll do anything. There were three ways, though, I think, that this man tried to deny his guilt. First, he concentrated on negative obedience. Notice here, comforting himself with the sins he hadn't committed, like robbery and adultery, but all, of course, acting as a convenient smokescreen behind which he could hide the many sins he had committed. Second, he majored on legalistic obedience piling up all the unnecessary things that he didn't really have to do. He didn't, for instance, he talks of fasting twice a week when Moses said once a year was enough. And the Pharisees were famous for meticulously tithing every single thing they owned, even down to the little herbs in their herb garden, when the law actually only asked for a tithe of their main crop or their main income. All of course, geared to prevent him from thinking about or facing up to the big things that were wrong in his life. Kind of like a little boy who's maybe spilled a pot of paint in the carpet and tries to hide it behind his big toe. And a little bit like us maybe, when we think that our attendance at worship or the prayer meeting, when we think our service to the church or giving to the church, when we think that these kind of things make up for unloving and judgmental attitudes or for a cruel and critical tongue. Third, this man majored on comparative obedience. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Isn't that the classic? Lord, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as him. That's the attitude that Jesus spoke of elsewhere, isn't it, in, in Matthew's gospel? That attitude that loves to point out the speck in someone else's eye so that we can avoid facing up to the log in our own eye. It's so easy to fall into this trap. For instance, I read about the, the story of a Sunday school teacher who taught this very parable to his class and to finish, he summed up with what he thought was the obvious lesson. Let's thank God, children, that we are not like that proud Pharisee. Oh, yes. So this man's righteousness then was a self-righteousness based on guilt 
denial. Now, what I now want to suggest to you is that it's this, it's these plus various other guilt-denying techniques in our guilt-denying age. It's things like this that I believe actually lie at the root of many, not all certainly, but of many personal and pastoral problems that we find today among God's people. You know, people have a problem with low self-esteem, low self-image. They've got inferiority complexes. And they maybe go on and they say, I've got no assurance of no salvation, no hunger for God's Word, no joy in worship, no desire to witness. What I believe so often is the root problem of all of this is that people have actually got sin in their lives. They feel guilty about that sin. But by denial, by refusing to face up to it, by trying to hide their sin, by refusing to acknowledge their sin, by in one way or another not dealing with that sin. So bit by bit, it is destroying them. Because sin, you see, causes a barrier in our relationship with a holy God. And that's something that bit by bit pulls any Christian apart. What's the answer? What's the answer? The only answer is to instead seek this righteousness of the tax collector. We know so much about this righteousness already, do we not? That it was based on an awareness of his sin and guilt and need. Yes, and it was based on his humble dependence on the grace, on the goodness and mercy of God. Let me, though, add just one little further insight into this. That is, remember where this prayer was said. That is, it was said in the temple. Well, what's significant here then is that the word that this tax collector uses here for mercy is actually the word that would be used in the temple for God's mercy, God's pardon, won by the blood of sacrifice. You see, this man wasn't coming to God, asking God just to ignore his sin, pretend it never happened. Nor was he saying, listen, Lord, I know that you're a loving God. That's your nature, and therefore forgiveness is natural and easy for you, so grant it to me. Now, what this man was saying was, Lord, loving as you are, I know that you are also a holy God. And so therefore, I know that my sin, that my sin is something ugly and terrible in your sight. And it makes me ugly. It makes me unacceptable to you. But Father, I thank you that you have provided a way with dealing with my sin and guilt and shame. Yes, I thank you for that costly blood of sacrifice that pays for my sin, that atones for my wrong, that cleanses me, and it makes me acceptable to you, my holy God. You see, this man didn't look to his own righteousness to win him acceptance of God. He didn't expect or he didn't want to walk into heaven with his held, held high. Or rather broken and needy, 
he looked to the altar of sacrifice. And so it was to him that the doors of heaven were thrown open wide. And you see, that's why I said that that SS officer was close to God. For undeniably terrible, the things that he did were, yet in his brokenness, in that he'd come to an end of himself, in this, he was at that place where God can work. All he had to do was turn and look at the altar of sacrifice. Turn and look at the ultimate sacrifice. Turn to that cross of Jesus, the blood that pays for and atones for all our sin, that can cleanse every man, every woman from every last spot of guilt and unrighteousness. So what I want to say to you now then is that if for whatever reason you feel that you're in that same place, if there's sin and guilt in your heart that haunts you and makes your life empty and miserable and hopeless, then in the same way I say to you, look to the altar of sacrifice. Look to the cross of Christ. Trust in the blood of Christ. Because then life can begin for you again. John 1 1 John 1 verse 9, sorry, says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's new life. There's a new beginning. There's new hope for all who look to Jesus. Let's look to him now. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Let's come to God. Father, we just want to thank you for that amazing sacrifice of Jesus. That sacrifice that washes all our sin away. Father, help us today not to trust in any way in our own righteousness, but simply to look to Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.